Uh, so to, today we're, we're going to look at the, the first six verses of, of Genesis chapter 3, but uh, the reading today will, will encompass the first seven verses just because it completes a, a thought there. But we're only going to be studying up to, to verse 6. And besides this describing the tragic fall of, of mankind, uh, these verses actually give us a hint as to how our enemy, the, the devil, uh, Satan, the serpent of old, as he's mentioned in the book of Revelation, this is how Satan and his fallen angels and his demons operate. And their tactics uh, haven't changed since the beginning of time. So we'll start with the reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And the, the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So, so nor normally we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the where and the when, um, but we, we really don't know. We don't know where Eden was. We don't know the location. Uh, we don't even know exactly how far in the distant past this takes place, definitely pre-flood, um, but it's hard to pin down uh, a, a time frame for this. That said, uh, let's, let's take a look at our first verse here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any living creature of the field which the Lord God had made. So let's, let's take a quick look at our adversary. So our, our enemy is described as a serpent, and the original Hebrew word for serpent is nakam. And it does translate into serpent. However, the root word for nakash, if it's used as a verb, means shining one. And so th there's a small number of commentators and, and scholars who, who think perhaps that this is what the word is referring to, a shining one as opposed to something that's slithering on the ground. And, and angels are, are often described as having faces like lightning and the arms and legs of burnished bronze and eyes like flaming torches. And... and and what scripture tells us about Satan is that he was once a cherub, which is a type of angel. Um, and they were, the guard, uh, they were the throne guardians or the throne bearers of God. And this was a, a highly ranked position and, and a cherub with a, with a flaming sword was assigned to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were cast out. So scri scripture tells us that, that Satan was a created being who wanted to take God's place and rule and reign without answering to God, taking the place of God. And originally, uh, his name was Lucifer, which means star of the morning. Uh, and he covered the very throne of God the Most High, but when he tried to usurp God's throne, that's when he was cast out of heaven. And so regardless of, of the debate of whether Nakash means a serpent or, or a shining being, uh, what we know for sure is that this thing that approached Eve was some type of supernatural divine being. And, and we're, we're dealing with a, with a supernatural being who is, 
described as crafty, uh, crafty or subtle or shrewd, depending on, on your, your translation. And in the context of these study uh, passages, crafty doesn't actually mean evil. There couldn't have been anything evil in the garden because uh, God said when he created the earth that it was good. And at the end of the sixth day, um, God looked at all that he created and he said it was very good. So, so the serpent is something completely different, that perhaps not, not something that was in the garden itself. If we put ourselves in the mindset of the ancient Israelites who were wandering through the desert and had just escaped from Egypt, serpents during that time were seen by pagan cultures of, as gods of healing. And, and that's why even today the medical industry, they still have that symbol of a snake because uh, that, that's a callback to, to uh, pagan beliefs about snakes. Um, but the ancient Israelites had a different view of snakes. They, they knew right away when you mentioned a snake representing something that it was their enemy. And so in the mind of an Israelite escaping from Egypt, uh, once they heard serpent uh, in this biblical account, they knew it represented something bad. And so maybe Satan possessed uh, something that was slithering on the ground or he entered the, and entered the garden that way or he took the form of a serpent that was walking um, because we know that from Scripture that Satan can clothe himself as an angel of light. And Satan has two purposes in, in his life. The first is to receive the power, glory, worship that alone belongs to God Most High. And his second purpose is to hurt the heart of God any way he can. In particular, by turning the hearts of God's people against God and away, away from their creator and steering them onto a path of evil. And Satan may have been crafty and cunning in the Garden of Eden a long, long time ago, but he may actually be more so today because he's had thousands of years to study human behavior. And he's probably even more diabolical and more manipulative today than he has ever been before. And so this, this enemy, this serpent, enters the garden and he finds Eve. And the serpent said to the woman, can it really be that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So, so first off, is anyone bothered by the fact that a snake is talking? Um, for some strange reason, Eve, because snakes don't talk. And, and there, there's only one instance in the Bible where an animal talked, and that was Balaam's donkey. But God opened the mouth of that donkey so the donkey could talk. This, this thing was talking and was engaging Eve in, in, in conversation. She's, she's not bothered by it. She's not threatened by it. And she's, she's not concerned that this thing is talking to her. And she's probably alone at the moment. So there, there's a 90-10-ish there's a split um, between commentators and scholars as to whether Eve was alone. And the majority of them actually believe she was alone at the time of this encounter. Because if, if, God, uh, if Adam was there, he would think it's strange too. He probably would have said something if this, if this talk, snake was talking to his wife. And so th this brings us to our first lesson point. Satan attacks us when we're alone. Whether we're, we're physically alone, spiritually alone, or mentally alone, or emotionally alone. You can, you can be in a crowd and still be alone. You can be in a church and feel emotionally alone. And you can have your Bible in front of you and you could be grieving, you could, you could be sorrowful, you could be disappointed, and sometimes you can feel spiritually alone. Wondering why God hasn't answered your prayers. And, and the times when, when we're most vulnerable to attack or when we're alone. Because when, even when we're enjoying ourselves, we know our guard goes down and we're open to suggestion. 
And more than likely in this verse, Eve was near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because why would the serpent be asking the question unless the tree was nearby? And maybe Eve is even thinking about the tree. Oh, there's, there's, that, there's that tree that, that God warned us about. And, and that's when Satan asks his question. And that's actually the first step in temptation, when we start entertaining thoughts of something. We're, we're not uh, amongst fellow believers who can encourage us to steer away from something. When we're alone and when we're isolated, our, our thoughts can turn into something terrifying if we don't keep them in the check. And, and all it takes is one glance at something you shouldn't be looking at, whether it's on your screen, smartphone screen, or in a theater, or out on the street, and the mind starts to wander, and maybe to Eve to glance at the tree. And as soon as she does, Satan appears and says those words to her. And so, so this gives him his opening, and he begins by actually misquoting God's words where he actually asks her the question, uh, or he says, you shall not, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Where actually what God says in the previous uh, chapter, God actually says, you may freely eat from every tree of the garden. So, so this is meant to raise doubts. Satan isn't, isn't denying God's word, uh, but he's altering it just enough so that it seems like it's the truth. Um, but at the same time, Eve starts to question in her mind if God really said what he actually said. And once doubts planted in our hearts, they'll start to bear fruit if we don't treat the doubts like weeds and, and, and pluck them out right away. And so this leads us to our second lesson point. Satan tempts us with doubt. So the devil wants to get us to doubt God's word because once we start doubting God's word, then we don't think that the rules apply to us. Doubt erodes confidence, and doubt creates fear, and envy, and, and jealousy. And God gives us everything that we need in life, the, the air that we breathe, the, the food we eat, the ability to work, and, and the ability to enjoy people, and enjoy activities, and enjoy the things that we have. And he gives them to us when he knows we need them, not when we want them. And God, God said that Adam and Eve could eat from all but one tree in the garden. But Satan changes God's words ever so slightly. And that doubt that Satan seeds into Eve's mind is the beginning of temptation. The, the doubt that God isn't true to his word. The, the doubt that God was te wasn't telling her everything. The, the doubt that God isn't totally in control. And the doubt that God actually loved her, perhaps. And the doubt that God w wasn't withholding anything from her. From doubt come thoughts like, well, I'm missing out on something. And God is stopping me from getting it. Maybe, maybe he's not such a good God after all. If, if, if he's keeping this thing from me, this, this tree with its fruit, I mean, what's, what's, what's God hiding from me? And so what Satan did to poke at Eve was to tell her this half-truth. And he takes a positive statement that Adam and Eve can eat from any tree in the garden except one, and he turns it into a negative statement by casting gout, uh, doubt on God's word and turning it into a restriction. And, and furthermore, the, the half-truth is also a form of a question meant to get Eve to react. It, it's a question that Satan wants her to answer because that's the bait. Oh, you, you can't eat from, from any of the trees in the garden? Did, did God really say that? Did he really? Oh, that's, that's too bad. 
And so Eve takes the bait. And why not? The question required an answer, didn't it? And so Eve says, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, except the fruit from the tree which is in the middle of the garden. God said, you shall not eat from it, nor touch it, otherwise you will die. So, so there's three things that Eve does in these two verses that she wasn't cognizant of, but we need to be cognizant of. So, th so the first is that she answered Satan's question. And, and at this point in the Bible, we don't know what or who Satan really, or she didn't know what or who Satan really was. Um, because again, she didn't seem afraid of him in whatever form he chose to take. And, and there was no perceived threat, and he, he did ask her a question. And the, the thing is, is that when temptation comes, and temptation, the temptation uh, itself is and, and will be unavoidable, that we, we can't stop the thoughts from entering our heads, um, but we can try to stop them from, from uh, continuing. And we can't stop ourselves from initially seeing something either, uh, but we can avert our gaze away. But, but the, mo the, the point here is that um, she's starting to entertain thoughts of the tree because of the question that, that he asked. And her, her thoughts are starting to linger on the tree now. And by answering Satan's question, that, that was her way of lingering long. And she says, we may eat from the trees of the garden, except the fruit from the tree which is in the middle of the garden. Because by answering that question, Eve's now entertaining Satan's temptation and has brought the tree into the forefront of her mind. And from here, it starts to dwell in her mind. And from here, it, uh, and from, from this point on, um, it's going to be hard for, for her to get it out of her head. And, she, and again, she says every tree but the, the one in, in the middle of the garden. And all of the trees that God says they can eat from have now faded from her mind. And at the center of her mind is a tree at the center of the garden. And, and notice how she says, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, uh, as, if, as if she's now thinking that life in the garden has limitations. Because God said they can eat any tree of the garden except for the one that's in the center of the garden, but now it's, it's starting to sound like, well, there are other trees in the garden that I can't eat from in addition to the one that's in the center. And, and when she herself adds, nor touch it, she's actually now embellishing what God said. So, so here's a side-by-side -side comparison. So she says, um, over there on the left side, we may eat from the trees of the garden except the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You shall not eat from it nor touch it, otherwise you will die. But going back to chapter 2, nowhere in this part does God actually say, don't touch it. He just says, you shall not eat, otherwise on that day that you eat from it, you shall most certainly die. And, and perhaps it's possible that the nor touch it part um, was something that God told Adam and Eve later on. We'd, we don't know actually how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before Satan approached. Um, and it's possible maybe Adam had told her at one point, point don't, don't touch it. But re regardless though, it's, it's an addition to what God originally mandated. Um, and it's, an, it's, a, it's actually an additional restriction that they can't eat from it nor touch it. And so, so Eve is making the matter of the tree, it's starting to become bigger in her mind than it really is. And, and for all we know, it could have been the ugliest tree in the garden, but because it was forbidden, um, it suddenly becomes more desirable. And, and the, more desirable than, than any of the other trees for the simple fact that God said no. 
Um, and when God says no to something, then, then why, why does that become the focus of our attention over the things that God has said yes to? If, if there were 99 trees in the garden and God said no to one, I mean, you've got 99 trees there that you can enjoy, but you're focusing on this one thing. Um, it becomes a focus of our attention. And there, there's, there's so much abundance surrounding her to, to, that she shouldn't be focusing on just that one tree. So she, she's also doing something here too uh, with her statement. She's, she's minimizing God's provision. At, God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed and the food, a place to live. He gave them each other. And the way she talks about God minimizes his generosity. And she's heading in the direction that Satan wants her to go. And Eve actually mentions that if she does eat from it uh, or touch it, she, she, she simply says, you will die. Um, but you'll notice that God says in the previous chapter at the bottom there, you shall most certainly die. That's a guarantee that you will die if you eat from the, you eat from the tree. But maybe she's thinking in her head. She leaves that out. Maybe she's maybe, well, maybe I'll die. Maybe I won't. Uh, did he say that it was actually certain that I would die if I touched the tree, uh, eat the tree, uh, eat the fruit from the tree? Would, would God really do that to me? I mean, surely he might make an exception for me. I'm the first woman ever. Uh, so, so she knows there's a consequence to disobeying God. And th this would have been a good place for her to, to back away and to tell Satan that he was wrong. But she doesn't. Instead, she goes along with him, not fully committed, but she's headed in that direction. In her mind, though, that she, she thought she was correcting Satan, but her correction wasn't accurate to what God said. And, and there's one more thing here, and, and it's, it's hard to pick up on, um, that shows us the direction that Eve is going to. So here, it, yeah, this is the NIV version. The, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat any tree in the garden? And if you notice in the first verse, it's written, Lord God, and... Most of us know that if you have a capitalized L-O-R-D, um, that's, that's the proper name of God. Yahweh is how, how most people think it's the name is pronounced. And the ancient Israelites thought the name Yahweh was so sacred that they dared not actually say it. And so instead in the Pentateuch, they replaced it with Adonai, which is Hebrew for Lord. And, but Yahweh is the covenant name that God gave to Moses when, if the people were to ask, well, who shall I say sent me? Uh, and God says, I am who I am. So the, the words, I am who I am, translate into Yahweh. And so going back a few verses uh, to where Adam is told by Yahweh God that he may eat from any tree except from the tree in the center of the garden, you notice here in verses 1 through 3 ch uh, of chapter 3, there's no mention of Lord God at all. Satan does not use God's proper name when talking about God. And, and when you eliminate Yahweh God's proper name, when you take away Lord when referring to Yahweh God, the God, God with a capital G suddenly becomes God with a small g. And so Satan begins respecting God's holy name, or disrespecting God's holy name, his covenant name, and is actually relegating Yahweh God to just another God. Satan is trying to minimize Yahweh God in Eve's mind right from the beginning. And Eve goes along with it. She doesn't say, 
Yahweh God said. Instead, she says, God said. And so, so this is the beginning of the breaking of a covenant and the diminishing of Yahweh God as Lord and Master. It's, it's not until verse 8 that God is again referred to as Lord God. And at this point, uh, Eve should have, should have put a stop to the conversation and just run off and found Adam. But her enemy had one more thing to say. You certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. That is, you will have greater awareness. And you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And so now Satan answers Eve with a complete lie by contradicting God's word. The, the half-truth had opened her mind up to more suggestion, uh, just enough for Satan to, show, to sow uh, doubt into her mind. And now Satan is going to open the floodgates of her thoughts, making God out to be a liar. He tells her that she will not die. He's, he's telling her that there are no consequences for disobeying God. And th this brings us to our third lesson point. We rationalize sin by altering what God says. Satan makes Eve believe that the doctrine of what we today call divine judgment, he, he makes her think that the doctrine of divine judgment is false uh, because he tells her that eating the fruit from the tree will make her like God, that the, the, the threat of death is just a scare tactic uh, to keep Adam and Eve in their place and under God's thumb. And this is why it's, it's absolutely essential for all Christians to spend time in God's word outside of Sunday mornings. Uh, Satan will happily tempt a person who doesn't understand God's word and start to substitute what's written in the scripture for, for half-truths and then eventually full-blown lies. Satan will snatch the truth, out of, uh, uh, the truth of God's word out of a person's heart and out of their mind, leaving that person weak and vulnerable and, and defenseless. And a defenseless Eve, with her guard down and the word of God twisted in her mind, her, her mind is now open, not to the obedience that comes from the love of Yahweh God and, and fear of judgment, but her mind is now open to that which Satan once, saw, once sought and once craved for himself, to be like God. And you can imagine Satan saying to her, don't you want to decide your own life, Eve? Don't, don't you want to be like him? Think of all the things you can do now that you know good and evil. You can, you can be a better helpmate to your husband because you'll have experienced what's, what's, uh, what it's like to, to know both good and evil, to know what's good and to know what's bad. Adam will appreciate you for your knowledge. You, you can guide his decisions with wisdom and, and he will praise you and honor you. I, and I, I only want what's best for you, Eve. When Satan, what Satan is really saying is, I want you to be like me. I want you to be arrogant. I want you to be proud. I want you to be self-sufficient and independent of God. I want you to be selfish. And what he's not telling her is that I want you to fall like me and then eventually be judged like me. And our, our world has given uh, too much to the I'll try anything once mentality and, and it, they take it way too far because because you have to try it, otherwise you, uh, you'll, you'll never know. And you, you'll never experience, um, you'll, you'll, you'll never know if something is good or bad unless you experience it. But, but the I, I'll try anything mentality when it comes to God's prohibitions is just another way of people exercising self-sufficiency. 
and independence. Or being the captain of their fate and master of their soul, like, like uh, the end of the, of the poem Invictus. If, if you look at Satan's language um, here, he, he never actually forces or demands that Eve eat the fruit. He never directly says, go take a bite. He, he plays off of fears and doubts, that, and, and that's how he gets her to eat the fruit. Because sin at its core is, is unbelief. It's, it's not believing in the truthfulness of God's word. It's, it's a rejection of God and God's will and God's word. Uh, that rejection is rebellion against God. Once we start to question God's word, we'll eventually start to deny God's word. Uh, it may start small like, well, I don't believe what this verse says or, or I hate these particular books of the Bible. I'm just going to ignore them. Or, or you can do what Thomas Jefferson did. He actually took verses out of the Bible that he, that he disagreed with. Or you can just convince yourself that God is love and can never condemn a sinner. The reality is that God is holy and righteous above all things. And at, at this point in verse 5, Eve has already sinned inwardly with her thoughts. Um, when sin takes root in a person's heart, it, it's only a matter of time before it comes to the surface. So now she's going to physically take action and, and sin outwardly. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desi desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig coverings together and made coverings, sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Eve's now given in temptation and God's stern warning has been minimized in her head. And she's rationalized things now to the point where God's warning no longer means anything. And here we have a, a, actually a parallel that's written in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where, where John writes, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So Eve gave in to lust of the flesh. She saw that the tree was good for food. She could have stayed away from the tree and looked in a different direction. But instead, she looked at the fruit and was drawn in by it. Um, just one look is all it takes. And, and unless you know how to avert your eyes, unless you leave your, uh, yourself opening to the, to the warnings of the Holy Spirit, then you'll listen to the cravings that are inside of you. And so she steps forward towards a tree. And she saw, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasant to the eyes. And so she gave in to the lust of the eyes. So this is no longer a casual glance. It's a lingering, longing look. Your eyes are locked onto something now. And sometimes when you close your eyes, the images are already burned into your brain. And they're there. They're, they're taunting you. And, and it, it's a craving for evil things and a craving for the things of others sometimes. And so Eve saw that the, the, the fruit of the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she gave in to the pride of life. So the word desirable used here, and in some translations you'll have the word delight, both in the original Hebrew come from the Hebrew word which translates to covet, to have a yearning for something that isn't yours. So her desire for, or what she saw was desirable, what she saw was a delight, was something that she wanted to covet. And so, so what is the, the, the pride of life? It's it's knowledge, it's experience, it's wisdom, it's authority, it's power, it's independence, it's, it's self-sufficiency. All of, all of these things 
the pride of life are gained apart from God. Self-exaltation, too, is what led to Satan's fall. And Satan wants us to mirror him instead of mirroring God the Father, God our Creator. Satan wants us to give in to the, the pride of seeking recognition, of seeking title, of seeking authority, of seeking power, and money, and material possessions, and knowledge, and wisdom, and to gain that experience without the guidance and leadership of Yahweh God. When we exalt ourselves above others, that inevitably leads to us living as if we don't need God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. We don't need the, the, the triune God in our lives anymore. And God doesn't want us to be proud or conceited, especially spiritually prideful, like the Pharisees were when the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth. And throughout Scripture, these are the things that God hates, these are the things that God judges, and these are the things that God destroys. So these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are what motivate the world today, especially when we're conditioned to desire everything that our eyes see and live like there are no limits. When we put ourselves in the presence of a sinful situation amongst the fruit of sin, it's really hard to stop thinking about that sinful fruit. There's the look, there's the glance. Our eyes connect with a person, whether they're across the room or on the screen in front of us. Or, or we see something that someone else has and we begin to covet that thing. And we just, we just have to have it. And some people will even steal to get it. Once our eyes connect with whatever it is, it's hard to turn away. And once we've sinned, sin spreads, which brings us to our fourth lesson point. Sin eventually affects and involves others. So we can often draw people into our own sin, like Eve did. And, and it's no coincidence that sin is compared to leprosy in the Bible. Sin, sin spreads like the, like the cold and the flu, person to person, and all it takes is person to person contact, and it passes from one person to another, like Eve giving the fruit to Adam. And she probably thought she was doing him a favor by bringing the fruit to him. Um, she'd been changed, and, and maybe she wanted to help him open his eyes as well. I mean, did she use the same enticements on Adam that, that Satan used on her? We, we don't know. Um, either way, Adam sinned too. And she became a stumbling block to Adam's doing the will of God. And scripture warns us to, be, uh, to not be a stumbling block to others. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, it's written, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. And this leads us to our final lesson point. Satan had the authority to tempt Eve, but he didn't have the power to make her sin. So Satan doesn't have that type of power. He can't drag you by the hand and physically make you sin. Satan's power comes from the temptations that he whispers in your ears, especially when you find yourself in a situation where you can be tempted. Eve sinned of her own free will. The, the devil didn't make her do it. And, and even though Eve sinned first, Eve was not responsible for the fall of mankind. Adam is responsible for the fall of mankind, not Eve. And that's something that we'll address in part two of this lesson, which we'll cover a few weeks from now. But 
let's look at three questions to ask. Do you overlook God's provision in your life? So Yahweh God gave Adam and Eve everything to enjoy. They, they didn't need anything but God himself and, and what God gave, gave them. And we, we all overlook those provisions. Um, from the food that we eat to the legs that we have that take us out into the parking lot. Uh, we, we have the blessings of, of a church family um, here. E even, though, even though we're tiny, yet we have the blessing of worshiping with fellow believers. We have a blessing of community just in this room here. And, and think of the air that we breathe right now. Every breath is a gift. Every heartbeat is a gift. And, and sometimes even annoying family members are a gift. And with, with all that God has given us in this life, it, it doesn't make sense to be looking for more uh, just because others are living life to excess uh, or have bigger and, and bigger and brighter things than us. Second question. When you experience the fear of missing out, do you recognize it as temptation? So, so do you actually recognize when, when you're, you're trying to talk yourself into sin? Or, or do you recognize the suggestions that Satan or his fallen angels or his demons are whispering into your ear? Uh, the, the, those suggestive, those enticing thoughts. Avoid the enticing thoughts. Avoid entertaining those thoughts. You'll, you'll, you'll get the enticement, but avoid entertaining them. Avoid lingering on them. Avoid talking about uh, those thought, enticing thoughts with others, especially if you're looking for some type of encouragement to sin. And remove any doubts you have about the consequences of sin. Remove any doubts you have about God's word. God's word is true. God's word is unfailing. And God will keep his promises from promises of blessing to promises of judgment. God isn't partial to some people, uh, rich or poor, or if you're in rehab or if you're in living in the suburbs or behind a counter or you're an executive at a company. God plays no favorites. His blessings and his judgment will extend to everyone equally. And he wants you to avoid giving attention to the forbidden fruit, no matter, no matter what form that fruit takes in your life, because forbidden fruit will never be fulfilling. No matter what people say and no matter what Satan says, you gain nothing from indulging in forbidden other than grief and poor spiritual health and eventually the, the same ultimate fate for Satan and his fallen angels and his demons. So the final question. Do you battle Satan's lies with the truth of God's word? So since our enemy tempts us by twisting God's word, then the way to resist temptation is to know God's word and to spend personal time in God's word. Because when you're alone and Satan starts poking you and prodding you with lies and half-truths, you'll be able to fight back with God's truth. So in, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, I don't have a slide for it here, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is fasting in the wilderness and it's a time when he's hungry and when he's alone and Satan comes after him. And, and those of you who fasted, whether intentionally or, or not, uh, know just how miserable fasting can be. And Satan's first temptation are these words. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Because Satan knows that the Lord Jesus Christ is hungry. This is the lust of the eyes. I'm sorry, this is the lust of the flesh. 
Jesus is craving food. So to correct Satan, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then Satan tempts Jesus again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan's quoting from Psalm 91. This is the lust of the eyes. And so the Lord Jesus Christ responds from Deuteronomy 6. It is also written not to put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan tries one more time to tempt Jesus by showing him all of the earthly things that Jesus could obtain in the world. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. This is the pride of life. Satan doesn't quote scripture anymore. He just, he instead reveals his true motivation. Satan wants the worship that has always belonged to God and God alone. Pride wants that type of reputation, that, that type of recognition and that type of power. And the Lord Jesus Christ responds, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Satan leaves him. This is how powerful God's word is when it's read, when it's ingested, and when it's understood by the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son relied on God the Father's words in the midst of temptation and was able to overcome the temptation that Eve did not. Not that she couldn't, she just didn't. And we're, we're called to do the same, to, to push back against temptation as hard as we can instead of giving in, to, to remind ourselves of God's provision and his promises in scripture. So hold firm to your faith and acknowledge and be thankful for God's provision in your lives. And it, it's getting harder and harder for, for us today. But God wants us back in the garden with him. He wants, us, he wants us in heaven with him so that we can fellowship with him in his presence as it was long ago before Adam, even before the fall.